everyone, Pastor Ryan here. So glad to be with all of you. So glad that you're here, that you're watching, that you're worshiping with us today. Uh, today, we are continuing our series um, uh, through the book of Philippians called Joy for Today. And, and if you can remember from previous messages so far, uh, this letter, the, the letter to the church of Philippi, it was written by the apostle Paul. And he he wasn't writing this letter from, from a nice office in Ephesus. He, he wasn't writing it from a coffee shop in Athens. Um, he, he actually, as we learned earlier, he was writing this letter when he was in prison. And then one of the main themes of this letter, if not the main theme of the letter is, is joy. And now that might seem strange initially to some of us. Paul, remember, he was unjustly imprisoned, but he's not taking this opportunity to, to write about how terrible his circumstances are. And, and he's not using this letter to vent about how terrible Rome is and why he shouldn't be where he is. No, he's, he's writing about how much he loves the church at Philippi. And he's writing about experiencing, even though while he's in prison, supernatural joy in the Lord. And he'll go on to explain how, how we can find that supernatural joy. And hopefully, as we continue on through this letter, God, by his grace, is going to help us to experience that same joy, um, even if we find ourselves in, in really difficult circumstances. And I know it's been said like a million times already, but, but what we're going through right now I think can definitely be seen as a, as a sort of uncomfortable uh, circumstance and, and not as uncomfortable as, as, as being in, in prison. Many of you probably not watching from an actual prison right now. I know a lot of you are watching from your homes, which by now might have started to feel sort of kind of like a prison. Um, I, know, I know many of you like myself wish that, that this, that, that our, our time of worship, that our time of teaching, that our weekend services, that, that they were happening live that we'd be back together again for this. And, and I'm, I'm so there with all of you. And I know that every, every single elder, every single pastor, every single staff member, um, they're all there as well. Uh, trust me, we, we wish we were together live. And, and just thinking back, um, you know, it's wild to think that it's been nearly four months since we've all been together. And then thinking back to, to when it all started back in March, um, so many of us, we, we had our eyes glued to the news. We kept looking at our phones and we were, we were just waiting and then watching as, as government leaders and, and medical experts. Initially, they, they started to make pretty bold statements that, that this virus that, that we were seeing in, in the world, it actually wasn't that big of a threat and our country wasn't at risk. And, and I think obviously those statements have, have since proved to be wrong. But, but as things continued, and, and even as the pandemic, even as it continued to spread, uh, those same experts then made some predictions about the, the severity of the virus and the potential death rates we'd see. Predictions that, that also now seem to be maybe overstated or even wrong. And so now here we are, we've gone through April, May, June, and now we're in July. And we, we find our country now, I think, in this really crazy state of friction. There's so much disunity as some loud voices on one side say that it's relatively safe to end this lockdown. While there are those on the other side that say we can't stop now and we should continue to maintain the lockdown even longer. Some saying that we should wait until we find a vaccine or a cure. And I, there's just so much to think about. There's so much to process. And, and so my initial thought in all of this would be that, first of all, would we just continue to be praying for our leaders, praying that God would give them wisdom during this time, praying, praying that our leaders, that they would remain humble during this time. 
You know, if there's one thing that this season of chaos has shown us, it's that the chaos that's disrupting our lives today is, is going to inevitably be disrupted by some other chaotic event in the future. And, and none of us, barring God, none of us has the foresight to be able to predict what exactly is going to happen next. And, and, and secondly, um, my prayer is this, that, 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 that we also would remain humble. Because given our current state of unrest and disunity in this country, I know that many of you, many of you fall somewhere on that spectrum that I just mentioned. Some of you believe that we should open everything up right now and we should just go for it. And, 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 you, and, you, and you think it's crazy that things are still locked down the way they are. And, and some of you uh, think that we should remain locked down and this is a good pattern. And, and I know a lot of you fall somewhere in between on that spectrum. And I know that because I see it every single day on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, on Twitter, in my inbox. And then that, and that's fine. Uh, but, but here's where I grow discouraged. It's, it's, it's not in the mere sharing of our thoughts and opinions, but, but it's the way that we're sharing them. You know, I'm, I'm all for the plurality of thoughts and ideas, but when we begin to share our opinions on a matter such as this, what we're going through right now, with a sense of condescension, with a sense of superiority, with frustration and with anger, I worry about the toll that's taking on our church body. I worry about the detriment it might be having on our testimony in our community around us. Because I think many of us are wrongly right now, we're wrongly worrying about the threat outside of the walls of our church. When listen, I believe the greatest threat we face during the season is not out there, but it's in here. And then more specifically, it's, it's in here. And then not just, not just my heart, but, but in all of our hearts. Listen, the greatest threat to our church is not outside of us, but it's within us. It's, it's not the threat of persecution. It's not the threat of oppression. It's not the threat of some disease. It's the threat of, listen, of pride that we should be most worried about right now. And then you might think to yourself as you hear that, well, I'm not prideful. That's not me. Who are you, who, who are you talking about? And you might feel that defensiveness rising up in your heart right now. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not prideful. I know prideful people, but, but, but I'm not prideful. Okay. Okay, let me ask you this then. What does your heart do when you see pride in other people? Those, those prideful people that you know, when they act in a prideful way, what does it make you think? How do you feel about those people and their prideful behavior? Because, because here's, listen, here's the thing. While there's no vice we hate seeing in people more than pride, there's also no vice that we overlook more in our own hearts than pride. The, the more pride that we have in our own hearts, the more we're going to be bothered by it when we see it in other people. And, and, and the reason that's true is, is because, listen, this is what's true about pride. Pride is, pride is essentially competitive. Pride's very nature is competitive. Pride doesn't get pleasure out of having something. Prideful people don't simply get joy from, from being smart or being good looking or being wealthy. Pride finds its greatest joy in, in, in being smarter or being better informed or better looking or wealthier than someone else. The joy of pride is not in the thing itself, but it's in the competition. It's in having more of something than the next person. And, and, and see, this, this is why pride is so destructive. Pride is so destructive because at its core, since it's competitive, pride tears things apart. At the epicenter of all disunity is pride. 
You know, it's why God hates pride more than anything else because, because pride alienates us from God. It alienates us from one another. Proverbs 16.5 says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Proverbs 26.12 says this, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. And James 4.6 makes it clear that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride's what caused the devil to become the devil. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the complete anti-God state of mind. And what Puritan theologian Thomas Watson said, seeks to un-God God. And so listen, it's, it's not a matter of, 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 am I prideful? It, it's a matter of how much pride is in my heart. Pride is, it has been, it will always be the greatest enemy to the unity and the, the effectiveness of God's people, our church included. And so this is what we must do. We must do everything we can to do battle with and kill the pride, not, not, not around us, but, but in our own hearts. You know, Paul knew this. It's, it's why he encourages the Philippians the way he does in chapter two. And it's why our big idea today is, is this. Staying low is essential to staying together. Staying low is essential to staying together. That is, if we wanna, if we wanna press on even through difficult circumstances, difficult circumstances like, like what we're going through right now, if we want to press on together in unity as a church family, then, then we have to. We must make every effort, each and every one of us, to stay humble. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up right now to Philippians chapter two, Philippians two, and follow along with me uh, starting in, in, in verse one. Paul writes this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one, and one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So the first thing I want to draw our attention to is this, what we are being called to as a people. And here's what it is, it's, it's unity. That's what our calling is. Our calling is to unity. And we see this clearly in the first couple of verses in this passage. Paul starts writing in verse one, he, he uses just that little word there, so. And that one little word in the Greek can also be translated therefore. And anytime we see the word therefore in the Bible, a quick and easy Bible study trick is just to ask why it's therefore. And we do that by briefly looking at what came right before it, what's already been written. But since we don't have time to do a, a really deep contextual dive, I'll just summarize what Paul wrote right before this. If you remember, Pastor Dave, he, he taught on this last week, sharing with us that Paul, that he was, he was encouraging the church here in Philippi at the end of chapter one to remain faithful to their calling in Jesus Christ, to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, in essence, to, to stay focused, to keep their eyes on the main thing, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, so if you're watching this right now and, and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then, then, then this is what you've been called to as well. You've been called to live as citizens of not of this world, but, but your primary allegiance is to the gospel of the one true King Jesus. You see, Paul, 
He's so grateful. He's so grateful for what God's doing in Philippi. And listen, he doesn't want them to lose what they've got going on. And so he encourages them all the more to press on and to remain in unity. He, he writes in, in verse two, he says, complete my joy. How, how are we to do that? By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And, and Paul is exhorting the Philippian church to unity because he knows he's seen it before in other churches, that, that, that pride that the enemy is always around the corner waiting to destroy the good work that God has done and continues to do. Remember, uh, at the epicenter of disunity, you will always find pride at work. And in Harvest, we have to be on guard what God has done in and through our church and what he continues to do among us, it's, it's, it's amazing. And I believe that's in part because we have remained steadfast as, as a vertical church. We are a church, we've, we've kept our eyes on Jesus. We've kept the main thing, the main thing. You see, the second we start to start to drift away from this, the moment we, we make something else the main thing, I, I think we're, we're gonna jeopardize our unity. We're gonna jeopardize seeing great things that God might do among us. And so, so we, we really, we have to be on guard against coming together uh, around other things like preferences or personalities or, or politics. We, we can't base our unity on those things or other things like a, like a style of music or, or a building. If any of those things are the glue that, that, that's keeping our church together, then, then ultimately we're gonna fall apart. The source of our unity is Jesus. Our eyes and our hearts must be fixed on him. A.W. Tozer, he put it this way. He wrote, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard by which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers worshiping together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. That right there, that is the secret to unity. Eyes on Jesus, not on each other, not on our preferences, not on our feelings, not on our circumstances, but eyes on Jesus. Think, think about some of your closest relationships that you have and think about, think about what brings you together with those people. And hopefully for, for, for some of you, your closest relationships, relationships are close because of your relationships with Jesus. But, but that's, that's not always the case and that's fine. Oftentimes it's, it's other things that bring you together. Maybe you're close with some guys because you all enjoy hunting or you enjoy watching football. Maybe your closest friends, you enjoy running or working out together or reading books and, and hanging out and talking about those books. Uh, here's the incredible thing though, about having a relationship with other people, other followers of Jesus Christ under the banner of Jesus. Uh, we can love those people. We can love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we don't have those things in common. And even if we disagree on stuff, that's mind blowing, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not a hunter, but I can be friends with someone in our church who is passionate about hunting because both of us are passionate about Jesus Christ. You, you might not enjoy sports, but, but you can be in close relationship with someone who does, or maybe you guys like different sports teams, but if you both love Jesus, you can love one another. And listen, you can disagree on politics, you can be a Republican and know someone who's a Democrat and you can serve at church together. And if you both love Jesus, yeah, that's right. 
you, you, you can both love one another and have unity together under the banner of Jesus Christ. You see, when our eyes are, are, are fixed on our hobbies and our politics and, and our passions and ourselves, we begin to define ourselves by those things. Uh, the things that we enjoy or agree with or end up defining, those things end up defining us. We become shaped by those things. And anyone who is not shaped in the same way as us becomes at best someone that we don't enjoy being around. And, and at worst, they, they, they become our enemy. However, when we submit our preferences and our hobbies and, and, and the way we vote or, or what we think about masks to the one true king, he miraculously affords us the opportunity to have fellowship, to have relationship with those who are vastly different than us. Unity in the church is a grace given to us by the work of Jesus Christ as our eyes are fixed on him. It's, it's, it's why the early church could, could gather together in, in people's homes and break bread and have fellowship in a way that was completely and totally countercultural. You know, at a gathering, you could have an important like Roman government officials sit next to and enjoy the company of and be blessed by and learn from someone who was a servant in his friend's home. Why? Well, because of what Paul writes in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. And for, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And listen, Jesus, what this verse isn't saying is he's not making us all into to the same thing. This is not some kind of uniformity. Jesus just makes every other thing that might identify us significantly less important than our identity in Christ. And, and until that's a reality in our own hearts personally, if your identity in Jesus Christ is not the single most important thing about you, then, then unity with others in the church is going to be, be really, really difficult. And that's what we're called to. We're called to unity. But this subversion of our other competing identities, laying aside our preferences and our desires, it requires something else. And that's the next thing we see in this passage. The primary means for how we're to achieve this unity is through the opposite of our pride. And that's, that's humility. Our means is, is humility. Look again at verses three and four. This is, this is really the how of unity. Paul writes, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so, you know, the first thing we see in these two verses in verse three, the first thing that we're called to do here is to do nothing uh, from uh, rivalry or conceit. And, and I know that none of you watching or listening right now, this is, this is none of you, right? Uh, none of you ever get jealous when you hear about someone in your workplace getting a promotion or if they get a raise. I, I know that none of you in our church, that, that when something like that happens, when someone else receives a blessing, you, you grow jealous, right? None of you feel envy when you see your neighbor or someone in your small group uh, get to remodel their home or, or go on a nice vacation. You don't, you don't get upset about that, right? And most definitely none of you try to make yourselves look better than you really are. None of you use Instagram or Facebook to make it seem like things are going really well, even if, even if you're struggling or, or even if things are just okay, right? Why, why do we feel jealousy? Why do we feel envy when other people experience blessing? Why do, why do we have this drive to seem smarter and better looking and 
like we're having the best life ever, even if none of those things are true. Why? Um, because we're prideful and our eyes are on ourselves. You know, Paul is saying that the key to unity in the church is to kill your pride, take your eyes off of yourselves and, and, and off of your circumstances and put them on other people. He writes, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And can't, can't we see, don't we notice that this is exactly what Paul is doing? This is exactly what he's done with his life. Paul had everything. He had money, he had position, he had power, he had prestige. He was part of the elite and he gave all of that up to go plant churches and make tents and to support himself and essentially to be homeless while, while also being persecuted and unjustly imprisoned. I mean, do you think he was pumped about all of that? Do you think he ever got frustrated about his circumstances? Do you think that at, 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 at any point Paul ever had doubts about his decisions? You know, we, we never see them expressed externally, but what we do see Paul doing is instead of complaining about being imprisoned and how hard his life was, his eyes are on Jesus and he's putting the interests of others before himself. That's what humility really is. C.S. Lewis said this about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's, it's thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again, because if you didn't write that down, you're going to want to write that down because that is good. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And, and in fact, um, insecurity and thinking less of yourself, it's actually just another form of pride because pride is not just self-confidence. Pride is, pride is self-obsession. Humble people are not preoccupied with themselves. They are not self-obsessed. They are focused on caring for others. And and listen, Paul also isn't saying that, that you should just think other people are better than you or have more value than you. Like, like I've got Lucas over there and then he's filming this right now. And, and guess what, Lucas? Um, you're not better than me. I know you think you're better than me. I know you think you have more value than me, but you're not. And listen, I'm not better than you. I don't have more value than you, but listen, I should be more focused on Lucas and his needs and placing those above myself placing his interest ahead of my own is what we as Christians are called to do. If we want to remain unified as a church, listen, we have to remain humble. Remember our big idea, staying low is essential to staying together. And, and listen, as, as humble as, as Paul was and as great as his example is, his example pales in comparison to our ultimate example. And the example Paul that ultimate, he ultimately uses in this passage, and that's Jesus Christ. Our example is Jesus Christ. Look again, look now at verse five. Paul writes this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is, this right here, this is the mindset that we should have, which each and every one of us as followers of Jesus, we have access to this by the power of the spirit. Would we look to Jesus who Paul says, though he was in the form of God, 
You see, prior to his incarnation, prior to taking on human flesh, Jesus was in the form of God. And first of all, what this means is that he was with God in unity with him for all eternity past. There was never a time when Jesus wasn't. He is God and has always been God. And before he came to live among us, he, the eternal son, was with the father. And then secondly, that word form here, it means the, the, the true and exact nature of something. To have the form of something in this sense means that you have, you have all the characteristics of, of, of something. And so, so therefore, to have the form of God uh, means that Jesus, he was equivalent with God. And this is in direct contrast to what comes right after it. Though he was equal with God, look what it says. It says that he did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form, there's that word again, of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so Jesus, the eternal son, he didn't hold on to any of his privileges. He didn't use them or exploit them for his own gain for his own interests. He let go of all of those things. And why? Because he had someone else's interest in mind above his own. He had a mindset of service. Romans 15, three says, Christ did not please himself. And Mark 10, 45 says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so listen, while Jesus was on earth, he was still God. He was equal with God, but he was also fully man. And and he was a servant to others. What God's word is communicating here in Philippians 2 is that Jesus, who had all the privileges that make sense for the, for the king of the universe to have, he had all of those, but he gave them up to become a Jewish baby bound for the cross. He had every right to remain where he was. He had every right to remain with God in his position of prestige and power, but, but the love he had for us compelled him toward a life of weakness, toward a life of poverty for, for our sake, for your sake for my sake, because he, he didn't just take on the form of a servant. He did more than that. Look at verse eight again. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul here, he, he unpacks this, this humble life of Jesus. But listen, the humble life of Jesus is, is also the gospel. It's the very thing we're called to rally around. It's the very thing we're called to celebrate. It's the very cause and the message that should be at the forefront of our hearts and our minds, even, even in the midst of a pandemic, even in the midst of economic uncertainty, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. So, so much in our world and so much in our lives is changing. But one thing that, that is not changing and cannot change is God's love for those who are in Jesus. You know, Jesus, he humbled himself unlike anyone else. He gave up glory and he gave up honor and, and he became like the lowest among us in order to deliver us from our greatest enemies, sin and death. And listen, as, as chaotic as this world might feel right now, this Jesus who is the same yesterday, today and forever has, has once and for all for those who have placed their faith in that finished work on the cross that Paul mentioned. Once and for all, he has secured your joy for today and he secured your destination for all eternity. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is why would we look to anyone or anything else for comfort and security in this world? Because listen, when we, when we look to this Jesus, who, who he, he humbled himself for, for a time, he was a servant for a season and he died a sinner's death, but, but we also have to look at where he's at right now. Look at verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. You know, when our eyes are on King Jesus, we can't help but be humbled by who he is and be humbled by what he's done for us. And so, so would we all be counted among the many whose knees are bowed, who are humbled before him on heaven and on earth, declaring with our mouths that Jesus is above anything and everything and everyone else, that he is Lord over all. And, and, and only then will the spirit begin to cultivate in our hearts the humility that fosters true unity among the body of Christ and within our church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word, that we can clearly read it and understand it. God, we, we thank you for the timely message of Philippians for, for our church right now. And we thank you for Philippians too. God, God, we thank you that you show us how to maintain unity in our church, even through difficult and hard circumstances. Uh, we see, Lord, that, that the, the answer is humility. And God, each and every one of us, our hearts, we struggle with pride. We are prideful people and Lord, would you give us the grace to be able to see our pride, to repent of our pride, and would you replace our prideful hearts with humility? Would our eyes not be fixed on our circumstances, on our feelings, on our preferences, but God, would our eyes as a church be fixed on you, Jesus? And as our eyes are fixed on you and as we humble ourselves before you, would you unite us and keep us together during this season? We pray all of this in your powerful son's name. Amen.